So I, I walked in today and I, I have this big smile on my face. And it's because I spent Thursday and Friday out in Los Angeles uh, getting to see my grandbaby. So it was wonderful. Thank you for asking. So I was very excited about that. But I'm really excited about this morning, too. This is a, just a great chapter in the book of the Revelation. So what do you think? Five years? Ten years? Twenty years? A hundred years? How long before Jesus comes back to planet Earth? We don't know. Okay? But I know this. Things are really heating up, aren't they? This place is getting crazier and crazier every day. It seems to me like the stage is, is being set for that day when Jesus comes again. But I want you to know this. In the midst of the calamity and the chaos and all the confusion, uh, there are great days ahead for us and for Christ church in this wild, wicked, nutty world. David Wilkerson, who has passed away, but was the founder of World Challenge, a great ministry in New York City. Um, they still are publishing newsletters of some of his old messages. And one that I got in December talks about the church's greatest hour is still ahead. You can go online to uh, worldchallenge.org if you wanted to read this. I'm sure it's online. But the point of this message was, even in the midst of all the calamity and chaos happening in the world... God is still at work. And in this, he, he, he made this point, which I think is great. You know, a lot of Christians say, oh, if I could have been alive during Pentecost, that would have been so awesome because it's the pinnacle, the highlight of, of the church age. He makes the point that even Jesus at the wedding feast in Cana, where they serve the best wine at the end, not at the beginning, said there are greater things in God and in the Holy Spirit at the end than Pentecost. So even as we watch the world get nuts, God's up to good things. And his spirit's being poured out in the day and age in which we live. So I want you to hang on to that because we're going to look at some pretty crazy stuff today in chapter 11 of the book of the Revelation, okay? I'm preaching earlier in the time allotted for this morning than usual because I have a lot to cover today. I mean, we have a record, record number of PowerPoint slides. God bless you, Stephanie Hewitson. You worked real hard this week to get all these things done. Um, and I didn't know how long this message was going to be. And I didn't want to divide this message into two parts. Since we have our fusion conference, our missions conference next week, I did not want to try and pick up in two weeks where we left off. I can't remember what I said two weeks ago. I can't expect you to. Okay. So we've got a lot that we're going to cover today, an awful lot, but I, I wanted to get through this one. Um, I do want to say this also in light of the, the missions conference, the fusion conference that's coming. Uh, this whole next week, starting tomorrow, is one of the high points of our calendar year as a church. Missions, global outreach is not something that we do just because we're supposed to. And it's not a tack on that we do as a church. It is one of our core values. Okay? And... Um, it's important for us to remember that the reason why I think we're still here on planet Earth is to advance God's kingdom and to spread the message, the gospel message of Jesus Christ. We personally here locally, but also to support missionaries who are doing that around the globe. Now, we can't all go, right? We're not all called to go and do what they're doing. But we can support them as they go 
and we can come here and bless them and encourage them and support them through those events that are mentioned. You know, a, a, a lot of churches, when they do missions conferences, they have a full week of meetings every night of the week, and everybody's expected to be out every night of the week, and the missionaries are just kind of run ragged. We have a very different perspective and view. We bring our missionaries in from all over the planet to refresh them, to encourage them, to, to build them up and to give them some rest. You have no idea how hard missionaries work. Well, maybe you do, but they are out there pouring their lives out on the front lines. And we want to bless them and support them. I don't ask a whole lot of you, okay? And I can't mandate or demand anything of you. Now, if you work on staff, I have this thing called a paycheck and I can make demands. But you're all volunteers. This is a volunteer army. I beg you as your pastor to make this next week and those opportunities a priority. These people are giving themselves away. And it's kind of like we're holding a parade. I don't want to have a parade where four people show up and go, yay. I want the church to come out in mass and say by our very presence, we love you. We're behind you. We're with you. We're so glad to partner with you in what God's calling you to do. Okay? Now, this has special bearing on you all because next week, one service at 9 o'clock. So if you show up at your regular time, you miss the parade so to speak. So nine o'clock, please be there. I short of begging you, I beg you. All right. All right. Good. So today we're going to tackle chapter number 11. Remember I said last week, chapters 10 and most of chapter 11 are kind of another interlude, a break in the action, a shifting in scenes between the sounding of the sixth and the seventh trumpets that we read about in Revelation. Chapter 11 is probably the most difficult chapter to understand in the whole book. So you want to just skip it and I don't either. Good. Glad you're with me there. So. In a minute, after we read this together, I'm going to ask you to fasten your seatbelts because we're going to cover a lot of ground and you're in for a wild ride today. So John Hummel is going to come and read uh, this chapter for us today. So, son, if you would come. That's my son, by the way. So if you would come, would you stand as John's coming as we uh, give honor today to the word of God as we read it together? All right. Revelation 11. Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar, and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for forty-two months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for twelve hundred and sixty days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouths and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during these days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the, beasts that, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome and kill them. 
and their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth but after three and a half days the breath of life from god came into them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell upon those who were watching them and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them come up here Then they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are... Who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, the great, the small, and the great, and those, and to those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, and sounds, and peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. Amen. Thanks. You can have a seat. So before we dive into the text, um, there's a couple of important points, some good background information that I want to give you, because I think, again, it's the kind of stuff that will shape and form our understanding and our interpretation of, so what's this chapter all about? What's it talking about? There there are four main theories of interpretation with what's going on here. And I want to share them quickly and give, give you my opinion about them. The first one is that this is speaking of the actual temple being destroyed in AD 70. And, and that is true. Historic records show that Roman armies led by General Titus, who later became the emperor, um, did destroy, did indeed destroy Herod's temple. But I don't think that's what this is talking about at all, because this is a prophetic book, right? This is a futuristic book. And to deal with a past event that happened in AD 70 as if it were currently happening or if it's a futuristic thing just doesn't make any sense. It's as if John, go measure, oh, oh wait, there's nothing to measure, it's gone, it's been gone for thousands of years. So I just don't think that one holds a whole lot of uh, credence. The second one is one that people who hold to a dispensational theology believe, and that is they see this as a literal rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. Israel is the focus of this chapter and that there's a great connection to what chapter 11 talks about and what Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 through 27 talk about. Now, I'm not a dispensationalist in my theology. One of their main tenets 
regarding the end times is that they believe in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. That before any of this chaos and calamity goes on, the church is out of here. Revelation 4.1, they believe when John is, is told, come up here and I'll show you what's going to happen. They take that to mean that's a picture of the whole church being raptured. I don't believe that's the case, but I do agree with this point. I, I believe that this does refer indeed to the temple literally being rebuilt in Jerusalem. Now, we don't have time today to do this, but make a note to yourself if you want to take some time and do some personal study. Uh, write down Ezekiel chapters 40 through 43. Because when you go there, you'll see a lot more prophetic, specific detail regarding the rebuilding of the temple. And I, I personally don't believe that the scripture goes into that kind of detail if it's not talking about something literal, okay? That would just be way too much for something that's symbolic. So I do believe that the temple is going to be rebuilt. I also want you to know this. You can go online and find articles with regards to this fact. Orthodox Jews in Jerusalem today are amassing the materials needed to rebuild the temple. Huge sums of money are being collected. The priests' garments are being made. The animals sacrificed are being bred for the sacrifices. The, the stones and the, the gold and the brick and the mortar and all that kind of stuff is secretly being collected for this temple to be rebuilt. So that's happening over here, okay? Now, over on the other side of the continuum, there's some other things going on that are also very important for us to understand in light of what this chapter is talking about. And this is not conspiracy theory stuff. This is stuff you can find online quoting people who believe this and who are saying these kind of things, okay? So the Orthodox Jews are getting ready to rebuild the temple. On the other side of the coin, the Middle Eastern conflict and confrontation and, for lack of a better term, the final showdown is also building towards a climax and a conclusion. You've heard of the Arab Spring movement? Been reading about that in the paper, the, the quote-unquote pro-democracy movement going on in the Middle East, where they are trying to depose some of the dictators, some of the rulers in places like Syria and Egypt and some of those other nations. Now, I want to be clear. I am not saying that I think that the, the former leader of Egypt or the current leader of Syria are great guys as dictators. They're doing a lot of things wrong. But you've heard of the lesser of two evils, haven't you? Folks, there are some ways that if, if these leaders are all deposed, this Arab Spring movement that on face value is all about democracy coming to the Middle East is not that at all. One of the key movers and shakers behind this Arab Spring movement is the, um, the Muslim Brotherhood. I want to share with you their motto, okay, their statement. Not something I'm making up, but their statement. Their motto is this, Allah is our objective, the prophet is our leader, the Quran is our law, jihad is our way, dying in the way of Allah is our highest hope. And folks, their goal is to obliterate, to wipe out 
the nation of Israel, to drive them into the sea, to annihilate them. I want to say this to you. If I had, and I'm talking here about radical Islam. If I had a radical Islam person next to me and just said that to them, they would look at me and go, yeah. Yeah, so what? So we're not throwing stones here. We're not making things up. I'm telling you what's going on out there, okay? Iran is one of the key players in what's happening in the Middle East right now, both from a spiritual sense and from the nuclear I can't say that word, proliferation that's happening. Iran is trying to get nuclear weapons, okay? And there's a connection here with that and the spiritual climate going on over there. The Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, not Khomeini, but Khamenei, the current uh, leader of uh, Islam in the nation of Iran, along with President Ahmadinejad, are on a mission, a spiritual and a war mission that combines together. They are on a mission to usher in who is one who is known as the 12th Imam. The Mahdi is what he's called. And in radical Islam, especially among the Shiites, they believe that this Mahdi, this Messiah, is coming. And what they need to do to bring him is to create Armageddon. To create a world war. Armageddon. I want to go, wait a minute, that's our word. That's in our Bible. But there's a parallel, a counterfeit, but a false parallel here to what God talks about happening. You see, they believe, they literally believe that the Mahdi is in the world today. He's hidden somewhere. But as they get Armageddon rolling, as they get this uh, nuclear war going and this great conflagration all over the earth, the Mahdi will appear. And bring salvation, potential salvation to all. The world will convert to Islam or the infidels will be killed. They even believe that Jesus will convert to Islam. Because he's coming back also. But not as the Messiah that we know, but as one of the prophets who will convert to Islam. So that's going on. And then we have this, this spiritual climate in the world... Our ambassador to Belgium, his name is Howard Gutman. He has said this. Yes, traditional anti-Semitism is wrong and it should be condemned. But, but the Muslims' hatred of Jews because of the Israel-Palestine conflict needs to be understood. That's a whole different thing. So we've got the Orthodox Jews getting ready to build the temple. We've got the Muslims that I just talked about. And then the world climate is, yeah, Israel, stop it. Like it's their fault. I say all that to set context for what this chapter is talking all about. Do you all know what this is a picture of? That's the Alaska Mosque. It's called the Dome of the Rock. It's the second most holy shrine mosque in all of Islam. The number one is in Mecca. That's where they make their great pilgrimage to. But this is number two. Do you know where this sits? This is in Jerusalem. But it sits inside of the walls of the old temple. That wall you see there in the front is the wailing wall. If the Jews are going to rebuild the temple, guess what sits right in the middle of the temple grounds? 
that mosque. Folks, if the Jews make plans to rebuild the temple and that mosque has to go, literally all hell will break loose in the Middle East. Unless some amazing peace negotiator shows up on the scene and can somehow calm this all down and let that happen. Oh, you mean like the Antichrist? Bingo! The stage is being set for what's going to be happening. And that's much of what chapter 11 is all about. I want to real quickly for you make this connection to Daniel chapter 9. Because verse number 2 in what John read for us talks about the nations treading down or trampling down the holy city for 24 months, for 300, excuse me, for three and a half years, for 1260 days. It talks about that language. That's the same amount of time. 42 months, 1260 days, three and a half years. It's all the same. Daniel 9 is a very specific prophecy to God's plan for Israel in the end times. And I think you'll see an overlap here of chapter 11 really having Israel at its focal point. So let me read for you Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 through 27 saying on the front end that I wish I understood all this better. I'm not going to go into great detail. I'm just going to highlight a few things for you. But I think you'll see the connection. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end to sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So, God's plan, in other words, is going to be fulfilled in his people in this nation. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem... Until the Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, and it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war desolations are determined. And he, we'll talk about who he is in a minute, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Again, I don't understand this as well as I wished I would, but most scholars agree that 70 weeks is talking about 70 times seven-year periods. Okay, a week is seven years. Um, One week represents seven years. There are different prophetic timetables as to when is this clock ticking and when it's not, and I'm not going to go into all that because I don't know. But the 70 weeks are the time that it will take to complete God's ultimate plan for his people, including Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. This decree that will be issued to rebuild Jerusalem includes the temple being rebuilt. And the Jews are going to rebuild that temple because they are expecting the Messiah to come. Not come again. Because they rejected Jesus, but they are still looking for the Messiah. So that's part of what they're expecting. 
This 62 weeks plus 7 weeks is 69 weeks, which takes us right up to the beginning of the 7 years of tribulation. The scripture talks about this great tribulation being a 7 year period. The 62 weeks, it says the Messiah is cut off. That's a flashback in time referring to when Christ was crucified and the Jews rejected him. So there is this rejection that has gone on that God's going to do something about in the future. But I think that the the key to me as Daniel describes God's plan unfolding in the end times is verse 27. And I'm going to tell you who I think that he was. And he will make a firm covenant with the many... That's talking about the Jews for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. I believe that's the Antichrist. And I believe that he is somehow going to have the power to broker a deal in the Middle East that says they can rebuild this temple. We're going to let them do that. That's the start of the 70th week. But in the middle of that week, at three and a half years, he is going to break that covenant. He's going to break it. And as it says here, there will, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. I believe that's symbolic of the fact that we're done with that now. It's not going to happen. Many scholars believe that it's at that point in time that the rapture will take place. Mid-tribulation and before the wrath of God is poured out. I can see that as a very real possibility. It's not the one I totally subscribe to, but I can see that. And as we go through this chapter, I think we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go. Okay, that's the second option. Here's the third, that this is just symbolic. And it's a prophetic picture of the church existing in a hostile world. That's what replacement theologians believe. In a nutshell, replacement theologians don't believe that this is about God's plan for Israel. When they rejected Christ, the church then took their place and all the promises made to them now are for us, the church, and not them any longer. It's the polar opposite of view number two, okay? Their reasoning, I think, is kind of weak on this one, frankly. When, when it says to John, rise and measure the temple of God, the word for temple there in the Greek is the word naos, N-A-O-S, okay? And everything that's said here in Revelation 1, 11, 1, measure the temple, the outer court, the altar, it's all talking about the church. It's got nothing to do with Israel, they would say. And they base that on this fact. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21, the story is told of how God, through the apostles and the prophets and the foundation of Jesus, is building his people, us, the church, into his temple. And it's the same word, naos. And so they think, hey, when they're talking about the temple here, we're now the temple. So this is talking about us, not Israel, not the Jews. We've replaced them. I'm sorry, but I think that's really poor scholarship. Because you have to take things in context, okay? Ephesians chapter 2 does say that we are the temple, but the we is not just the Gentile church. 
Listen to what this chapter says. This is a little bit long, but stick with me. Pay attention because I really want you to see what's going on here in Revelation 11. And you have to understand these other portions of scripture to get this. In Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 11, Paul writes this. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision by the Jews, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. So prior to Christ's coming, we weren't a part of the the covenant God made with his chosen people. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace. Now listen to this, who made both groups into one. And broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. How did he do that? By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the problem, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So that in himself he might make the two into one new man. Thus establishing peace. And might reconcile them both. Both. What's that word again? Both. In one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. Jesus took care of the problem. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, Gentiles, and peace to you who were near, Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Folks, God does not have an either or mentality. God is a both and God. He is a multitasker. He's the ultimate multitasker. We sit in such a finite position if we think, well, who is it? It's either the Jews or the church. It's got to be one or the other. That's so narrow. To me, it's immature. It reminds me of my kids in the car 15 years ago when they're fighting and bickering as to who was my favorite. It's not about God having a favorite or God can only love one and not the other. God has a plan, one plan for two groups. Jesus fulfilled that plan. So when we get into this replacement thinking, I just think it doesn't hold water. Okay, number four. This is symbolic and prophetic and deals with the salvation of Israel, the Jewish people. Now, I believe it does deal with the salvation of the Jewish people. Those who believe that point and call it symbolic believe that it does tie to Romans chapter 11, where we're the ones grafted in and they're the ones that the plan was for in the first place. But to believe this is symbolic means you don't really believe the temple's going to be rebuilt. And I disagree with that. I think the temple is going to be rebuilt. The other thing they believe in this symbolic prophetic picture is that there will also be a mid-tribulation rapture. And, And the thing I love about the word of God is this. We don't just have to read the revelation and take it at face value, although we should, right? If all we read was revelation, we should still go, that's God's word and it's the truth. But here's what you have to see. You have to see big picture. This book from cover to cover talks about the story at the end of the book. The prophecy in Ezekiel. Oh my golly, that's in chapter 11 of the Revelation. We're going to look at some things Jesus said about the end times and his coming. Some things Paul said. Some things Daniel said. We've already looked at. Folks, from cover to cover, this book deals in a unified theme with what's going to happen. 
And it's not like, so all these people sat down in a room and said, so you write about this and I'll write about that and you write about that and in the end our story will all mesh. They're hundreds of years apart. Thousands of years apart. Still has that theme that weaves through it. Only God could do that, folks. Only God could do that. So here's what Jesus had to say say in Luke chapter 21, referring to what Revelation 11 talks about. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation, that word appeared in chapter 11, by the way, is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave. And those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are the days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled, until this one plan for two people comes together. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth dismay among the nations in perplexity at the roaring of the seas and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of things which are coming upon the world for the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. It seems to compress time here so that a mid-tribulation rapture is a possibility. But Jesus himself is referring to the things of Revelation chapter 11 here in this moment. God's multitasking ability is an all-inclusive plan for all of the peoples. So, here's my take, all right? Chapter 11, I think, is about God's dealing with his chosen people, Israel, very, very specifically. But the church is still here, and we're still included in what's going on, as we're going to see here in a minute. I think, again, a a mid-tribulation pre-rapture is a very real possibility, especially since what we read here in chapter 11 and through chapter 18 or so is very compressed in terms of the amount of time that unfolds. All right, so having said all that, let's dive into the text now, all right? Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple. Don't measure it, for it's been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. I think measuring the temple and the temple proper and the altar and not the court of the Gentiles, that's what the outer court is, means this has a Jewish focus. And I think that the point here is not the actual dimensions, because John doesn't say, I measured it and it was this big and this long and this tall. That's not the point. The the point is, when something is measured, it's for the preservation and the protection of something that's very important. I say that because when you go back to the book of Zechariah, he was given the charge to measure Jerusalem. And here's what it says in chapter 2 of Zechariah. So I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see how wide it is and how long it is. For I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. So the point isn't the actual dimensions as much as God's promise. When he calls John to measure this, it's God saying, I'm going to protect Jerusalem. I'm going to protect my temple because I've got a plan and a purpose for it. In the end times. 
The outer court, it says, was trampled and the city was trampled. I think that could be symbolic of, yes, God has a plan for Israel, but what's going on in the outer court is a symbol and a picture of the apostate church. Yes, the church is still here and it's alive and it's thriving, but there's going to be a lot of apostate, quote unquote, believers and even Jews that don't come to faith in Messiah. But there will be a faithful remnant, folks, and God's got a plan for what he's doing there. It talks about the city being trampled underfoot for 42 months. As I said already, that's 1,260 days. That's three and a half years that Daniel talked about. The point in the picture, and the picture in this is, evil is going to be dominating the world, okay? It's going to be really nasty. Antichrist rules. But God still has a plan. And even those things must take place. God is still having a plan that is unfolding and he still has a powerful witness on the scene even as black gets blacker. We talked in chapter 10 about the mystery of God being finished, that mercy is no longer the issue. It's time for justice and we're seeing that here. These witnesses were clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth in the Old Testament is the dress of a prophet. There's a couple examples of that you can go look up on your own. It's a picture, it's a sign of mourning and lament, and it's a call to repentance. When the prophets wore sackcloth and ashes, it was a call to repent. And these witnesses are wearing sackcloth. Folks, that is not a hip fashion statement, okay? They're going to stick out like a sore thumb by design. Because they are the focal point. They're, they're the picture of what God's wanting to do in these last days. Let's jump ahead to verse number 6. Because I think it's the most telling statement about who these two witnesses are. And when I first said I was going to do this series, several people came and said, Are you going to talk about those two witnesses? I want to know who those two witnesses are. We're going to get there right here in a second. But verse 6 says this. These, these two witnesses, have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. I read that and go, hmm, where have I heard that before? We'll see. Here are the theories about these two witnesses. There are some who think they are just symbolic. Yeah, they're actually two people, but they're just kind of symbolic uh, witnesses of the church to Israel and to the world about what God's doing. And that one doesn't fit for me either. This is too specific to just be something symbolic. And I frankly think sometimes to call something symbolic waters it down so that it's easier to believe. Hey, this book is so wild and crazy anyhow right? I mean, it's no stretch to label these two witnesses as actual, not symbolic, but actual people. Well, who are they? Well, there are some that believe that they are Elijah and Enoch. And the reason they believe that is because those are two that have never died. Genesis chapter five says that Enoch walked with God and God took him. And Elijah, if you know the story, was also taken up in that fiery chariot. And since Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed unto man once to die, and then comes the judgment, there are people who says, well, those are the only two it could be because those are the only two that never died. Okay. I think a better choice, it's Elijah and it's Moses. 
That's who I think it is. Because of all the specific details in terms of what they're going to do. Also, Moses and Elijah represents the law. Moses got the law and Elijah the prophets. The law and the prophets are the story of God's dealing with Israel. And that's what this chapter is about. So, listen to some of the things that the scripture says. Even that Jesus says about Moses and Elijah. Jesus said in Luke 4.25, But I say... To you, in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, at the exact time that Revelation 11 talks about, when great famine came over all the land. Of Moses, it says this in Exodus 7 and then in Exodus 9. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff that is in my hand, and it will be turned to blood. God did that through Moses. Then in chapter 9, For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. Folks, what's described in chapter 11 is exactly what Elijah did and what Moses did. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but Moses died. Okay. But you know what else Moses did? Check this out. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Nobody went, wait a minute, I thought you were dead. Don't box God into our time and space continuum, okay? Yes, it's appointed a man once to die. But if God wants to resurrect Moses and bring him on the scene, are you going to give God permission to do that? I, for one, am going to. God, you're God. You can do whatever you want. I'm amazed as to scholars who have no problem with Moses showing up at the transfiguration, but he can't show up again in Revelation chapter 11. What? If he's there, chapter 11 works just fine for me, okay? Plus, the scripture says this, About Moses in Deuteronomy 34. So Moses, a servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And God buried him in the valley in the land of Moab beside Beth Peor. But no man knows his burial place to this day. I think God hid Moses away for the Mount of Transfiguration and for the plan he had for him in Revelation chapter 11. These two witnesses are described as two olive trees in verse number four and two lampstands. Again, I think it speaks to the olive trees, God's plan for Israel, the lampstands for the church. We saw that reference back in chapters one through three. This is, I don't see how this can be a symbolic witness. These are two real people that are putting together and revealing the plan of God specific to Israel, but including the Gentiles as well. It says fire flows from their mouth. Just think back to the stories of Elijah and Moses. When Elijah dealt with the prophets of Baal, he called fire down from heaven. When Moses brought the plague of hail, there was fire that came with that plague. That's who I think it is. But you know, whether you think it's them or you don't think it's them, the bigger point is this. These two witnesses, whoever they are, Moses and Elijah are under God's protective care. As long as their mission is incomplete, ain't nobody gonna touch them, right? You should take comfort in that. You know why? 
Because as long as you're here on this earth and God has a work for you to do, nobody's going to touch you either. It's not because these are two special guys. Yes, they are. But you're special as well. And nobody's going to touch your life. Nobody's going to take you out until what God has for you to do is done. So my word to you, make sure you're about the business your father has you here on this earth for, okay? Because there's work for you to do as well. But when it's over, it's over. When their mission was over, this is what happened. Verse 7. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Who's the beast? It's the Antichrist. Second Thessalonians refers to him this way. And again, see this interweaving of scripture. It's astounding. In Second Thessalonians chapter 2, it says this. And, and the it in verse 2 is talking about the day of Christ coming again and the rapture of the church. Let no one in any way deceive you for it... Christ's return and the rapture will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. That's the Antichrist. He's also called the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. He will delude all people of all faiths in that moment that don't truly know the Lord Jesus. The God of scripture. This also fits with what Jesus said about the end times and his return in Matthew 24. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, and those words were used in chapter 11, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet and through John, although it wasn't written yet at this time, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. It's the Antichrist who is going to come and wage war with these two witnesses and kill them. Back to the story. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth, the wicked, remember that means the wicked, the unrighteous, the unrepentant, will rejoice over them and celebrate and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Folks, to have your dead body not be entombed, to lay out for all to see for three and a half days is the greatest sign of humiliation and degradation and disregard and contempt that you could ever imagine. That's what the world is going to think of these two witnesses of God. Can you imagine a hatred so strong that you would give somebody a present because they were dead? Hey, honey, I got you a little something. Oh, what for? What's the occasion? Those two witnesses are dead. And they celebrate this as if it's good news. Can you get a picture of how much contempt and loathing there is by the dwellers of the earth for the plan of God? It's hard for me to even imagine. It's called Sodom and Egypt, this city. Those are derogatory names that refer to the rebellion, the hard-heartedness against God, and the reminder, Babylon, that judgment is coming. But this is Jerusalem. That's where the Lord was crucified. He wasn't crucified in Sodom or somewhere in Egypt. It was in Jerusalem. Well, just when you think it's over, as that great theologian Yogi Berra used to say, it ain't over till it's over. After the three and a half days, 
the breath of life from God came into them, into these two witnesses, and they stood on their feet. And great fear, no, duh, great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up into heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. Can you imagine how many people in that moment are on their cell phones texting OMG? I don't think there's an LOL in the crowd unless Moses and Elijah have phones and they're texting LOL. This is just going to be a moment like we almost can't imagine, isn't it? There's some scholars, just put the next slide up, Bill. I'm not going to read it. But there's some scholars that think this is the come up here that refers to the rapture of the church. Pre-tribulationists think when it said come up here in chapter 4, that was it. There are others that believe it's a mid-tribulation and this is when it happens. I think that's a little bit of a stretch. Again, you have to kind of be symbolic and a little more inclusive. This is talking about the two witnesses, okay? I think it's really referring to them. If the plain sense makes sense, then you don't have to have another sense, okay? You don't have to read something into the text when it seems to be pretty obvious. I think it says these two actual witnesses are resurrected and taken to heaven. Back to our text. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Earthquakes are almost always connected to God's judgment coming. And Jerusalem sits on a major fault line in the Rift Valley. Much like San Francisco sits on a major fault line, and we've seen what's happened there. Geologists are amazed that it hasn't happened in Jerusalem yet, but it's going to happen. And 7,000 are killed. I don't think the issue is much the number is this is a calamity. But you know, as we've been saying, calamity always has the purpose of conversion built into it. And I think that what happens here is just a small picture of God's dealing with Israel, but even as he deals with Israel, his heart is for the rest of the world to come to faith. As we've talked about Israel and the Arab conflict and how they are just hell-bent on destroying Israel, as God saves his people, the conclusion God desires for the Arab world to come to is Allah has no power. It's Jehovah that has the power. And that it will cause revival to spread in the Muslim world. Now, I'm sure there are going to be radical Islamists who will have no part of that. But nevertheless, I believe God's heart is that these calamities will lead to a great conversion. Let's finish out this chapter. Verse 14, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. The first woe were the seals. The second woe were the seven trumpets. This third woe that is coming quickly are the bowls of judgment and wrath. We'll get to that. Quickly is a compression in time. Chapters 12 through 18 that we're going to enter into in two weeks really happens in a sped up, rapid kind of motion. But we want to move quickly now too as we finish this chapter. Rather than going right into the third woe, the theme of the book is stated for us in the next verse. And I want you to stand as we read this together and are reminded of, yes, it's going to get really nasty from chapters 12 through 18. But the summation of the book, the reminder of the book is in this verse. Let's read it together. 
Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Can you hear Handel's Messiah playing somewhere in your brain right at this moment? When I taught this in Haiti, the church erupted. They, we worship for like 30 minutes being reminded that, yeah, this is a sad and awesome, terrifying picture. But this is the conclusion. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he might reign? No, he will reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Okay, you can have a seat. The kingdom had come to the earth when Jesus came the first time. The kingdom continues to advance during the church age as we faithfully declare the gospel and proclaim the kingdom. It continues to advance. But the kingdom will culminate in all of its fullness and come to total fulfillment when Jesus comes again. Church, this is a mind blower. To me, this is so overwhelming. Even those who watch this unfold before their very eyes from their picture seat in heaven, their 50-yard line seat in heaven, are overwhelmed at what they watch. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worship God saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Not begun to reign for the first time, but have begun the totality and the finality of the consummation of your kingdom reign once and for all and forever. This is so mind-blowing that even the 24 elders who were in on the plan and sat by the very throne of God watch this happen and they fall on their faces. Because now, it's over. Amen. Amen. For the sake of time, I'm, I'm not going to go there. But if you want to make a note to go read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 22 to, excuse me, 23 to 28, it talks about how Jesus comes, establishes the kingdom, and in the end, he hands it all back to the Father once it is all fulfilled, once and for all and forevermore. Church, it's all going to come together in the end. And we're still going to plow through some pretty terrifying, scary, nasty stuff in the next six to seven chapters. But it's all going to come together. God's perfect plan for the ages will finally totally be fulfilled. And all heaven will rejoice. The earth? Not so much. Because the story goes on to say this. And the nations were enraged. There's still going to be people, the dwellers of the earth, who will continually shake their fist at God, even when they know that's a losing proposition. They don't care. They hate him. And judgment will come. There's such an encapsulation in this verse 18. And your wrath came. That's chapters 16 through 18 that we'll get to. And the time came for the dead to be judged. That's chapter 20. And the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, the great and the small. That's alluded to in chapter 20, but that's what the great white throne of judgment that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is all about. And to destroy those who destroy the earth. 
That's a picture specific to Babylon. Not the nation, not the city, but the world system that's raised up against God. That's what's going to happen to the dwellers of the earth. And then, wish I had a drum roll. Verse 19, the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. And the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Folks, God's got to deal with Babylon. God's got to clean the planet of all the mess. And then the new Jerusalem will come out of heaven and inhabit this earth. That's chapters 21 and 22. I'd like to go there now, but we'll wait. Okay? We're going to have a bit more worship time because I don't think we can talk about verse 15 and what follows and not just have our hearts express thanks to God. This place is a mess, right? It's going to get fixed. And we need to keep our eyes on that fact and continue to be about the business God calls us to with a rejoicing heart looking forward to that great day.